Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Flawed Theology Podcast. I'm Phil. And I'm Susie. And we're asking the question, if your theology were wrong, wouldn't you want to know? All right. Let's get this party started, I suppose. (laughs) I wish it was a real party. I know. Instead of just like sitting in our basement slash closet. Well, when we finally do a live show together, we are going to have a party. I know. I was looking at some pictures of Ross and Carrie who they like record together in the thing and they're like sitting across the table from each other. I'm like, oh, that's pretty cool. I wonder how they edit that. Like, Yeah, exactly. Like separate tracks and talking over each other. Yeah. It also feels like like your mic would pick up my voice and my voice. Yeah. So I wonder how they edit that. We have a lot to learn. Yeah. There must be some magical way that they do that. So you have big news and I'm going to force you to share it. Oh yeah. Big news of the week, which I guess it was last week. But yeah, we got a kitten, which I'm sure you were like so excited about. I was so excited. Yeah. You've been low-key making fun of me for being a cat lady for the last two years. Yeah. I'm still going to make fun of you for that. But that's okay. I'm fine with that. I just think it's ironically humorous that then you went and got a kitten. Yeah, I know. We were looking for a dog, another dog, because we already have one. And we couldn't find one that kind of like fit what we were looking for. And they had all these like massive dogs that had like aggression problems. We're like, that's a hard no. (laughs) Yeah. So we were like looking at the cats and the kittens. And yeah, my 13 year old has wanted a cat, like, I don't know, for like five years or something. (laughs) And I've been telling her to jump off a cliff, you know, and (laughs) blaming my allergies and yada, yada. (laughs) So yeah, we, we finally bit the bullet and we're like, okay, well, let's try it out. See how it goes. And how's it been going? Oh, it's been going pretty good. He's a cool little cat. He's like a teeny little dude. He's so small. We lost him in the house one day for like an hour <laughs> right before we were going to a soccer game. And I thought for sure he got out an open window upstairs. And so it turns out he was hiding behind like the China cabinet. And I think the dog scared him because we oh, actually yeah. brought we brought the dog in to try to find him. Because, oh, smart. But I happened to look behind the China cabinet. I saw his little yellow eyes back there. He's black cat. He's yeah. black as night and now we have matching kittens because mine is also black a black male and they're the same age and they look exactly the same oh that's awesome We're calling this episode the one with no soul, and we're going to delve into the idea of the soul and like, is there evidence for the existence of the soul? And if there is no evidence for the soul or if it doesn't exist, then what does this mean for the idea of the afterlife? And then kind of taking that further, what does that mean for the idea of spirituality and making the most of the life that we live in if there is no soul and no afterlife? So the whole idea of the afterlife is really the driving force behind Christianity in general. If there's no heaven and hell, then there's no point in salvation. There's no point in believing in Jesus, you know. And if there's no soul, then all of it is moot. Right. It's all a moot point. (laughs) Yeah. It's it's like a cow's opinion. (laughs) Come on. That's a friend's reference. You just like sat. Yes, I know. I walked right into it. Yeah. It's a moot point. And then Jennifer Aniston turns around. She goes, have I been hanging out with them too long? Or did that actually make sense? (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Oh, that's so funny. So I feel like this topic is one that a lot of people that have been through deconstruction and deconversion is a hard one to let go of. Did you find the idea of the afterlife hard to let go of? No, not at all. I didn't want it in the first place. (laughs) It's too much pressure. (laughs) Yeah. It's funny because I see a lot of people struggling with it and I actually didn't have too much of a hard time with it either. Even with the amount of like indoctrination and hellfire and brimstone like theology that I was raised with, when I kind of got to the point of like, I had already let go of the concept of hell kind of during deconstruction. Right. So I think once I let go of that part, then the afterlife wasn't as important to me. But it's a real sticking point for a lot of people because- They want to see their loved ones. Yeah, you want to see your loved ones. I mean, death in general is a a fear-inducing kind of thing in general. So 
yeah, the act of dying is what induces fear in me, if anything, not right. the absence of anything afterwards, because right. you won't even be aware that there's nothing. But anyway, yeah, yeah, yeah. He heaven to me always seemed like, I think I've said this before, like a never ending church service. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like hell to me. Right. Yeah. So let's uh, jump into our first point, which is we're going to talk about the soul. Like, is there evidence for the existence of the soul? How would you describe the soul? Well, every site kind of gives a different definition because it's such a subjective thing since it doesn't, you know, have right. material parts to it. Right. So I liked the definition from the Encyclopedia Britannica because it shows how you can think of the soul in naturalistic terms, which I like to do. And then yeah. it shows how religion superimposes an extra thing on top of it. So this is what it says. The soul in religion and philosophy is the immaterial aspect or essence of a human being, that which confers individuality and humanity, often considered to be synonymous with the mind or the self. Okay, so far, so good. I'm not too sure about the immaterial aspect part of it, but yeah. the mind or the self, I'm, I'm down with that. Okay, so then it keeps going. In theology, the soul is further defined as that part of the individual which partakes of divinity and often is considered to survive the death of the body. Oh, that's interesting because they kind of broke it up into two categories. Right, yes. Like there's a dictionary definition, which I think is from Oxford. And it's just like the spiritual or immaterial part of a human being or animal, which I or thought animal. was interesting that yeah, they put that is, in there. Yeah. And the soul is regarded as immortal. So it's this idea that there's a part of you that lives on for all of eternity. And this you'll see pops up in a lot of different ways. Even if people don't believe in heaven or hell, they're like, I'm stardust. I'm going to go back to the universe. You know, my atoms are going to disseminate all of that kind of gets lumped together in the idea of the soul. Yeah, the, the, I like the idea of the atoms disseminating across the universe. Like that's comforting to me in a way. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if I would equate that with the soul since atoms are material true, and like true. the soul is immaterial, but I do love that idea. Yeah, yeah. Now we're going to kind of focus more on like the concept of the soul and how it became a part of of Christian theology. So let's let's talk about that. So from the book Evolution of God by Robert Wright, there were super early human ideas about the soul. So there's something called animism, which is a primitive philosophy that attributes life to the inanimate, like rivers and clouds and stars and the animate. So like, of course, people and animals have this ghost soul or spirit, which is defined as the cause of life and thought in the individual that it animates. Mm -hmm. So this was an attempt to answer very valid questions like, what are dreams? And they thought that dreams were visits from other things, ghost souls or spirits. Mm, okay. And that's why they also thought that like rocks and rivers and stuff had souls because inanimate objects showed up in dreams too. That makes sense. Yeah. And then another question, of course, is what is death? And that's when the spirit checks out of the body for good. It's just like, I'll see you later. Yeah. That makes sense. You've referenced this book of evolution or uh, this the book, evolution, evolution of, God. of God several times. So I feel like I need to add this one to my list. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty good. So when you're talking about, you know, the development of, of Christianity, you also have to look at the Jewish and Hebrew ideas about the soul because Christianity was born out of Judaism. So the early Hebrews had an idea about the soul, a concept, but they didn't really separate it from the body. Like early Judaism didn't, right. like, which I guess would have been like the ancient times, like say like Moses and those old, old timey Judaism. As it got closer to the time of Christ, then the writers developed the idea of the soul. The idea of soul was related to the concept of breath 
and it was like this ethereal soul and then the corporal body which was like physical kind of separating the physical and the spiritual right so the early hebrews thought that the breath was what gave people life and animals life and that humans weren't even alive until they took their first breath or you know went till god breathed air into him or something right right there's a verse in genesis that says like man wasn't alive until god breathed into him yeah it, um, which has funny implications for the abortion debate yeah the verse i think says something like and god god breathed into them and man became a living soul <laughs> that's it yep. yeah but then as as judaism shifted i guess like closer to zero ce like 40 right. BC or so then the idea of like dualism and apocalypse apocalypticism started creeping in and that's where you kind of got the idea of like the good versus evil and then that led to discussions about this unseen battle between good and evil and then that's kind of where the soul thing started to creep in a little bit more as the idea of like oh your soul is like this life force that's inside of you that may be immortal mm -hmm. and can be judged right right then that led to kind of the early christian beliefs about the soul which would have been like the time of the greeks yeah and this is where we really see the concept of a body soul dichotomy take off and saint augustine who lived from 390 to 410 ce he spoke of the soul as like a quote-unquote rider on the body making clear the split between the material and the immaterial and so the soul represented the true person but they were very separate um, he was very clear that it was separate, but it's not possible to conceive of a soul without its body. Right, so you can't like, have a soul without a body. Right. They're totally separate. So that's interesting to me. Yeah. And I think the first person to introduce it was the St. Gregory, which was slightly before Augustine. He wrote about it in a couple of books and then Augustine kind of capitalized on it. And of course, Augustine was much more famous <laughs> than yeah. St. Saint Gregory of Nyssa, who nobody's ever heard of. And then St. Thomas Aquinas in the Middle Ages, you know, kind of went back to the Greek philosopher's concept of the soul as like a motivating principle of the body. Like it was independent, but it still required the substance, the substance of a body to make an individual. Mm -hmm. There's a couple different theories about the origin of the soul. And I got this from Bible.org, which is also, I always like to get stuff from like Bible references because <laughs> mm -hmm. it, it really gives you the, a good breakdown of like what, you know, Bible believers believe. So th there's three theories that are purported in this article. There's one called pre-existence theory. There's one called creation theory, and then another one called traducian theory. You want to talk about pre-existence theory? This is so interesting to me. Instead of the soul beginning when the body is created, the souls pre-existed the body and we're just kind of waiting around. Mm -hmm. And this reminds me of the movie Soul by Pixar. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I haven't seen it in a long time, but if I recall correctly, all the souls were just like somewhere waiting in another realm right. to be placed into a body. Yeah. And they were all like different colors. And then yeah. I remember that like when someone was born, you saw the soul come down and enter the person. And Mormons believe this too, because I remember Alex talking about it that. Oh, that's right. You've exi basically existed since the beginning beginning of time with God and then when you're born your soul comes in there and and Greeks and Hindus and Muslims have some kind of form of this too but Orthodox Christianity has has not not really adopted that well but there's no clear statement in scripture about it but that's why Orthodox Christians don't adopt this but my question is that if there's a fixed number of souls that are created and some are joined to human bodies at conception does that mean that some are never joined right like is there an infinite number of souls like right do the aborted babies get a soul or yeah, there's just or, a lot of questions that come yeah from it's this. a very interesting interesting theory and I, i'm trying to think of like anything in the bible that could possibly reference this and the only thing i could really think of is like where it says i want to say it's in 
Isaiah or Ezekiel, it's that, you know, where like God knew you before you were formed in your mother's womb. Mm -hmm. So what about the creation theory? All of these are really interesting. The creation theory teaches that the human body is transferred from the parents, but the soul, since it's immaterial, comes from God at conception. God creates the soul and places that soul in the forming baby. Oh, Psalm 139, 19 might be the verse that I just was mentioning. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, certainly you made my mind and heart. You wove me together in my mother's womb. That's I'm not sure what translation that is, but thanks for the hovering link that told me the Bible verse right there. I was wondering how you found it so fast. <laughs> yeah, like, my wow. Bible knowledge is pretty good, but it's yeah. not that good, but uh, <laughs> at least not anymore. But so this idea comes from the fact that like after creating Adam, God breathed life into his body. Genesis 2-7 is the one that says that. And there's a ton of uh, scriptures that kind of talk about God's continual work in creation and their spirits and like, and then the last one is the Traducian theory. I'm not sure I'm saying that right, but <laughs> yeah. Knows. It's a cool looking word. So yeah. What does it say? This is when both the body and the soul come from the parents. The idea here is that God's direct creation or making things out of nothing stopped on the sixth day of creation. So he doesn't make things anymore. Sort of like how life now propagates life by itself and mm -hmm. doesn't need divine intervention because of DNA and all that. Right. Souls are the same thing. The author of this article says that this one is the most persuasive or convincing to him because the soul is, of course, sinful and dirty and broken. And so right. how could it be that way if it came from God at the moment of conception? So it must have come, you know, be inherited and created from the parents. Mm -hmm. So I guess if you buy into all that original sin nonsense, then that makes sense. Right. Yeah. And there's verses that kind of support that, like, you know, because sin was passed down through Adam. So then you get this idea of original sin and human depravity. And then if the soul is the part that's actually, that lives on eternally to be judged and that's actually sinful, then that would make sense. Your sin nature is transferred to you basically by the soul transfer from your parents. So mm -hmm. thanks a lot, mom and dad, for making me a sinner. Like, <laughs> Yeah. And it also makes a good point that not only are we like our parents physically, but we're also commonly in personality, intelligence, and emotions. Right. Not all the time. Yeah. <laughs> and the author brings up a good point. Well, what about the birth of Jesus? Like, how did he not have a sin nature if he received his body and spirit through his mother? And then they just basically explain it away by saying it's a miracle, you know, that, that yes. the, the sin nature wasn't passed down. I th and, and this is a pretty popular theory amongst like famous theologian type people like John MacArthur and Charles Ryrie, who has his own like study Bible and all that kind of stuff. But I don't feel like any of these theories really, they don't really explain anything, right? They're just no. kind of like, well, the Bible says it this way. And then they use that to explain the soul. Which well, yeah, is they're assuming the soul exists and then they're trying to come up with a mechanism for its transmission and creation. Right. But this is an evidence that the soul exists. Right. Yeah. So, you know, the general idea is that upon death, man continues in this immaterial but conscious existence until the general resurrection. Yeah. Um, question about that. <laughs> the way I understood it from Lutherans by growing up Lutheran is that once you die, you automatically are judged and go to heaven or hell, like instantly. Now, my sister as a Seventh-day Adventist believes that you go into soul sleep mm -hmm. and at Judgment Day, you go to heaven or hell. Right. I think that there's like a middle ground where like you don't go to soul sleep, but you're, you remain conscious somehow. Your soul is still conscious, but you don't go to heaven or hell until right. the general resurrection day. What were your beliefs when you were a Christian about this? Well, our belief was that as soon as you died, you were immediately transported to wherever your you know eternal 
destiny was. So like, and the verse that we always use, like you close your eyes in death and you open your eyes in the presence of God. You know, there's some verse that basically says that more poetically than I just did. So it's like, as soon as you were dead, you were in heaven or you were in hell. And then later for the people who are going to get raptured, when the dead rise from the ground, they're joined by the people who are living and they all go to heaven, which now that I'm saying that doesn't really make a lot of sense because if we're already in heaven, as soon as I died, how am I going to go to heaven again (laughs) if I'm already there? That was exactly what I was just going to ask. I don't understand that at all. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That was probably explained, if I can recall, was that was the joining of the body with the spirit. The spirit was already in heaven. Your soul Ah. is in heaven. So the bodies are shooting out of the ground and going to join the soul. Okay. All right. And we'll talk about the bodies a little later. I definitely want to bring that up. So the thing the soul kind of serves to, to solve the what is called the hard problem of consciousness. Consciousness is one of those things that I guess you would say it's what differentiates humans from other life forms. You know, we have this level of awareness. Well, so do other animals though. Yeah. Well, I guess the the higher rational mind. And this is of course what people think that humans are the center of the universe would say we have a higher rational mind than animals, you know, and so that's why we have a soul and we can go to heaven, but Fido or the lion or the spider, they're not going to heaven. Spider is definitely not. (laughs) Yeah. To me, the hard problem of consciousness is like, how does a flux of sodium and potassium ions across a membrane causing an action potential, how does that translate to consciousness and experience and thought and memory? Right. That doesn't make any sense to me. I remember, um, you know, the first time I learned about action potential and neurons and how they fire and I was like, wait, I, I don't get it. Like, there's got to be more. Right. What's the next step? Yeah. Is it really all chemical? Yeah. And I kept like going forward in my textbook to see, no, no, no. Where's the next step? And we don't know the next step. And I can't even fathom what it would be. And that's the hard problem of consciousness. And I remember as a Christian, quote unquote Christian, clinging on to this. Yeah. As there's got to be a God who makes this magic happen because I don't understand how it could happen. Right. I still don't, but I don't feel like I have with a God anymore. Yeah, yeah. And this really first got formulated in a paper in 1995. And this author, David Chalmers, wrote a paper and then later a book um, called The Conscious Mind. And he said basically that in philosophy of mind, the hard problem of consciousness is to explain why and how humans and other organisms have qualia, which I'm qualia. not sure, or qualia. Like I don't, quality. Okay. Yeah. Uh, phenomenal consciousness or subjective experiences. Yeah. And so like what you're saying is like, well, how do you explain the difference between just like pure cognition, you know, ones and zeros going Mm -hmm. in the computer in your brain and then the quality of life and the experience of like things feeling bigger than they are or wonder. Yeah. And like the thing with qualia is the color red is like the big thing with that. And um, there's like a thought experiment where if Mary lives in a room with no light and she understands everything there is to know about the color red. Uh Uh-huh. Does she actually know what the color red is until she leaves the room and sees red for the first time? Oh, I've never. Is there any way she can actually know red before actually seeing red? Even if, like, you understand the wavelengths and photons and retinas and nerve impulses, but you can understand all that, but you still can't imagine red until you actually experience it, and that's what qualia is. Hmm. So is that like the idea of like someone who's colorblind, knowing theoretically about the color of red, but not ever experiencing it? Yeah. And I often wondered, what if you see green when I see red? Yeah. How would we ever know that we're seeing different things? Right. Because anytime I'd point to something and say, well, that's red, you, you'd go, yeah, but, but to you, it's green. And we'd never be able to communicate that they're different. Right. If my reality and your reality are what we know, we might be saying the same exact thing yeah. and looking at something completely 
completely different. Right. And we would never know. <laughs> yeah, you'd never know. Like, so the question is, like, does the soul solve this problem, this hard problem of consciousness? Because a lot of people want to say that the soul solves the problem, but does but we, it? Like- <laughs> yeah, right. Because, yeah, because if you can invent something like the soul that's like this magical, immaterial property, then you can superimpose it on top of like the atoms that we're made of and make the magic happen. Right. <laughs> but that doesn't mean that the soul is a coherent concept. Right. Which we'll see. Yeah. So in the book, Seeing Through Christianity, there's a whole section about the soul and afterlife, which we're going to reference several times during this. But he, uh, he goes on to say that like it's easy to see how a body does what it does. But compared to the body, the mind seems much more different and superior. It's the engine of consciousness that discerns patterns in cause and effect. It represents abstractions through symbols and then imagines realms where the body cannot follow. Does this sense of duality between mind and body require a supernatural explanation? Which I always think is a really important question with a lot of things. Because a lot of people say, oh, we can't explain that. It must be God. No. And Lars is always one that points this out. He's like, well, just because... XYZ happen doesn't mean it has to be God. So he goes on to talk about how different things that can happen to the brain, they shouldn't be able to affect the soul. So like if a part of a brain is killed in a trauma, those mental faculty faculties with that parts also die, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah. if a person has a head injury and they lose the ability to remember names, if the that capacity is housed in the soul, then why would a head injury matter, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you could say the same thing for uh, drugs and alcohol. They change the way we experience reality and perceive things. Was there a thing? Oh, like brain tumors. Mm-hmm. Even benign brain tumors can really mess you up because yeah. they're pressing on the tissues. Yeah, and there's like electrochemical stuff happening in there like <laughs> that is all physical. So if if all those things are physical, then how does that explain the the soul? It it yeah. doesn't like Yeah, well, uh, a Christian response to this is that the brain is more like a receiver for the soul. And so when the brain gets damaged, it can't it's like an antenna, I guess. It can't okay. receive the soul interesting when the body or the brain is damaged that prevents the body's ability to interface with the soul but that means that when the body gets damaged or the brain gets damaged the soul isn't changing so when we change here on earth the soul stays the same somehow separate so they no longer match and they get out of sync right and to me that's an interesting idea like yeah soul is no longer us so what is it? It's like some it's not really relevant anymore. Right. Yeah. Our next thing we were gonna kind of talk about was and I think we both kind of searched this out, like, well, what evidence is there for a soul? We came across a few like articles or whatever that they didn't make a lot of sense and, and the things that they talked about weren't really evidence. And the best evidence we have is kind of like what you wrote, is like it just kind of feels like there should be yeah, experiential. One. It just feels like yeah, yeah, I don't feel like a collection of atoms. I mean, that's all there is to it. Yeah, and you want to feel or you want to believe that you're more than just the collection of atoms and the water yeah. and the neurons and the electrical impulses in the brain. And like when you think about something like love, that does not feel like chemicals. But it is chemicals. It is chemicals, but it <laughs> yeah. doesn't feel like chemicals. It feels like something realer than that. Yeah, it feels like something bigger. Like Yeah. But it, it seems to be there's a lot more reasons or evidentiary support for not having a soul. So let's talk mm-hmm. a little bit about that. We kind of started hinting at some of these things. Yeah. So my first thought when I think about souls is which life forms 
have souls, like do animals and, you know, the spider. <laughs> At what point in the evolutionary progression did the genus Homo gain a soul? Right. Since evolution is true, we accept evolution. Right. It's this never-ending chain. You can't at any point say this is where Homo sapiens start. There was never a point where you could have done that. No. Where did we gain a soul? And did Neanderthals have souls? Yeah. And of course, you know, the, the Christian response to be that, well, well, God created humans with a soul. You mean created them outside of evolution, not with right. evolution? Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. We're talking about in six day creation. Yes. Ex nihilo, out of nothing creation, God created man and then populated him with this magical soul. And that Neanderthals never existed? Yeah. And that's another thing. That's actually pretty funny that you mentioned that because, like, you don't really think about what type of person God created. Like, what if the person that we've personified as Adam? was really just some grunting Neanderthal, <laughs> you know, and he wasn't this fully functioning human that we think of as a homo sapien. Like he could have been a pure caveman, you know, like, yeah. And if you accept evolution, yeah, there's no point in the evolutionary trajectory that you could be like, ah, here's where the soul came in. Mm -hmm. Like, because the human experience, even the early primitive human experience, they experienced life as fully as they could. So they yeah. had some level of consciousness. Like just to us, maybe looking back, we're like, oh, wow, they were like discovered fire and thought that was a big deal. But imagine if you had discovered fire and you had never seen it before. Like that was be mind altering. Like, mind blowing. That's crazy to think about. Like, to us, it seems like it's commonplace. Yeah, I imagine Neanderthals, they still were just as conscious as us. Right. Like you said, to the best of their ability. Yeah, so, so did the soul creep in there when the prefrontal yeah. cortex got higher level executive functioning? And then what proof would you have that the soul was in there all of a sudden? Right. Would How would it be different from like one generation to the next when suddenly your daughter has a soul? <laughs> right. How is she different than you? Imagine that teenage fight. Well, dad, you don't even yeah. have a soul. You <laughs> suck. When you're dead, you're just dead. I'm going to live forever. I don't have to listen to you. Yeah. I'm the one with the soul. You don't even have a soul. <laughs> Man, that's hilarious. So that kind of leads into the idea, well, if animals don't have souls, how do we explain their thoughts, their behaviors, their preferences, their capacity to suffer and feel pleasure? Yeah. We both have animals living in our house mm -hmm. and can definitely testify to my animal is thinking about something right here. Like Usually a, food. Right. Food or, you know, they like to play or like. There's definitely some, yeah, critical thinking and some yeah. sense of rationality. Yeah. And so it, if they don't have souls, well, then how do they have that ability? If the soul is what houses that ability. Yeah. This is my favorite thing of all of these discussions is if the soul is immaterial, well, then how does it interact with the material, the body? This is also from seeing through Christianity. So this PC says is the only way a soul could be free of the laws governing material matter would to be completely immaterial itself. But if the soul were completely immaterial and the body completely material, it is unclear how the two could interact. How could a wholly immaterial soul perform an executive function or get any traction at all upon a wholly material body? Yeah. It's like a really good question. Like if your soul is immaterial and you're material, well, how do they interact? What are your thoughts on this? Like, Well, I think first we need to link tell everybody to watch this debate that I watched. Well, it wasn't really a debate. It was more like a discussion uh, between Shannon Q and this guy who calls himself Duncan Atheist, but he's a Christian and he likes to dunk atheists, I guess. Mm, real clever, buddy. Yeah. Oh, he was a real piece of work. <laughs> it was a fiery thing. And this was what Shannon Q kept asking about. How does the immaterial soul interact with the material body? Like I said before, that they get out of sync. That right. if the physical body changes or you learn something new, does your soul also learn the new thing? 
or did it already know the new thing? Because right. is it like the epitome of who you will be, the highest you will ever achieve? Yeah. If that's the case, it's never in sync with you. It's never you. It's something yeah. else. It's like your highest potential. In which case, if your soul is your highest potential, what's the use of this body? What is the use of any of this? Right. None of this makes any sense. Yeah. And it's been proven that when you make physical changes to the brain, that manifests in changes to someone's personality. And we started to talk about this yeah. earlier. Like if parts of the brain are killed as a result of trauma, the faculties that go with those parts also die. So if you have a head trauma and it hits your area of broca, which controls your speech, that's a physical mm -hmm. change. You've heard of Phineas Gage, right? Yeah. 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 This is the most well-known case, I think, of a head injury causing personality changes. So for people who don't know, Phineas Gage was born in July 1823 in New Hampshire, and he was a railroad foreman. He had an iron rod got shot through his skull, like under his cheekbone, and then Ugh. it came out the top and obliterated the greater part of the left frontal lobe of his brain. And so after the accident, he recovered, but people around him said he was no longer the same Gage. He was no longer right. the same person. I mean, I think I remember learning about this in psychology class yeah, in college. I do too, yeah. Yeah, that's right, because you're a psych person. Yeah. But what I didn't know is that there's actually very little documentation about this case and about the personality changes before and after. Mm -hmm. It's kind of evolved into like historical myth instead of actually having scientific value, which I didn't realize. Yeah, well, I mean, you figure in 1823, psychology was a fairly burgeoning field. It's like nobody understood personality and all that kind of stuff. And so there probably wouldn't have been documentation because you wouldn't have known that his what personality changed. Yeah, you wouldn't know what yeah. to, you wouldn't use the word personality. You would just say, well, this guy, he used to be calm and happy and now he drools and he wants to like choke you know, dog. Yeah. To be clear, I don't think he did those things. Yeah. I don't but... know. I'm just saying, but like <laughs> you would have noted those changes through some kind of behavioral change mm -hmm. and you probably wouldn't have known that it had to do with your frontal cortex, you know, being destroyed. Right. I think they were more like really astounded that he survived that accident at all. Yeah. They thought he was going to die. He went into a coma for a while and then came out of it and just recovered and went back to work. But yeah, we touched on some of these other ways of like the brain being affected, like by alcohol or brain tumors or anesthesia. That's a really interesting yeah. one have you been put under for surgery or anything yes like it's a wild freaking experience like you don't know anything that's going on during that time i actually do remember a little bit while you were all the way under i might have been coming out of it maybe i was coming out yeah, of it i think that's when usually people have some kind of really weird experience sometimes like <laughs> it wasn't weird but my doctor his name was dr uh -huh. and i said did you know your name sounds like dr <laughs> and I was hoping I didn't say it in real life and that it was just in my head. That's hilarious. He like, never mentioned it. Yeah, he, he just marked that down in your chart. <laughs> Give her extra drugs. Like, oh, that's funny. So let's talk a little bit about the Christian response. You know, that their thought mm -hmm. is that the soul is separate from the body. And if the body and brain is damaged, then that prevents the body's inner ability to interface with the soul. So like the brain yeah. damage basically causes some kind of break in the communication, which is kind of a weird thing because if your body can't now interact with your soul, what happens if you have a brain injury before you become a Christian? Yeah. You can't ever make a soul decision for believing in Jesus because you're disconnected like <laughs> and that's related to my question like i was going to ask you if you have a soul is your soul christian or atheist right right now do you think it's atheist soul well if i believed in a soul then it it would probably according to my theological beliefs that i was raised in my soul is still a christian because i was raised to believe in eternal security okay and once saved always saved so but what about me as a lutheran i don't know if lutherans believe in eternal security they do they believe no in i don't think security? so i've never heard of it before 
for you. You could lose your salvation as a Lutheran? Pretty sure. That's why my mom cries every time she thinks about it. Okay. Maybe that's why my parents don't care. Oh, maybe. They're like, oh yeah, his soul's good, even though his he's yeah. now. So maybe that's wow. why. But yeah, if you believe in eternal security, you know, then you can't ever un-Christian yourself, really. Okay. Let's maybe change it from Christian and atheist to like Democrat and Republican. So if you change party affiliations at age 50, is your soul at age 40 the party you are at age 40 or is it the party you are after age 50? Well, it depends if you think that the soul is related to your political affiliations or is that purely physical. But it's your preference. Like it's your, I thought yeah. the soul encompasses your personal preferences and your ideologies right. and how you think and how you reason. And right. that directly influences your political leanings, right? Yeah. So yeah, that's, that's what question. I don't understand is like when you change your mind ideas, about, yeah, when you yeah. change your mind on something, when you change your ideas, when you learn something new, and really like when you have an identity shift like we did, it does your soul also make that identity shift or is your soul static? Right. That's what I don't understand understand and then so the christian response is when these questions are asked they just say well we don't know how the exact mechanism we don't really know and because it's not spelled out in the bible and we don't want to speculate right <laughs> well that doesn't stop you from speculating on a whole bunch of other stuff that's not in the bible so right yeah the whole thing is speculation because you don't really even the things that are spelled out in the bible they're not really spelled out like because depending on how you're reading the bible so it's that's so bizarre too because you just if you think about it you realize that like how on earth did you we base our entire lives on something that now when you look at it none of it makes any sense none of it exactly zero of it not any of it no not a single thing. I used to make decisions based on prayer yeah. when I never ever got a real answer to prayer. Or like, and so like these people are making eternal, what they would call eternal decisions based on absolutely nothing. Yeah. So what version of the soul is preserved forever? Like what you were saying, like, is it your, my Christian soul? Or if you even think about just personality in general, like your prejudices, your neuroses, your fears, your addictions, does that all go with you all yeah. into eternity? This is a funny quote from seeing through Christianity on page 46. Many personalities seem unsuited for an eternity of bliss. Like I could see that. I know. Like Donald Trump in heaven. And the whole quote is fantastic. Like why retain old errors, prejudices, addictions, neuroses, fears, and resentments. In fact, their elimination might be necessary for heaven to operate as advertised, full of human beings, yet astonishingly devoid of human troubles, such as boredom, jealousy, and conflict. But here is the problem. If all the negative aspects of our personalities are erased, to what extent of what remains is truly us or truly even human, which I think you said earlier. If all that stuff changes, like you hear people talk about heaven or whatever, like, oh, we're going to be perfect or whatever. Well, then is that really you? No, it's not. I don't know. It's a zombie versions of us. It's right. like lobotomized versions. It's like all the bad stuff taken out and everything that makes us human. But I guess that's the point is that we're not human anymore. <laughs> I guess. Yeah. So I found this interesting article and the title of it was called Did Neuroscience and Psychology Eliminate the Need for a Soul? It's a pretty long, detailed article, but they're basically talking about like, or asking the question, like, did science get rid of the idea for the soul? And the opening, <laughs> the opening line of the thing is, as a neuroscience neuroscientist and psychologist, I have no use for the soul. <laughs> on, <laughs> on the contrary, contrary, all functions attributable to this kind of soul can be explained by the workings of the brain. And the article goes on to describe an idea from Descartes, who was a philosopher in the 1700s. And he thought that since the brain is physical and material and of the body, it can be divided in half. So it's divisible. You can break it down into parts. But the soul not being material, you cannot break it down into parts. 
It's indivisible. So Descartes concluded that the soul and the body must be two different things. Yeah. But then there was an experiment that happened in the 1960s where Roger Sperry severed the corpus callosum, which is the hemispheric separator, which blocked perceptual, sensory, and motor and cognitive information between the two hemispheres. Sperry showed each hemisphere could be trained to perform a task, but this experience was not available to the untrained hemisphere. That is, each hemisphere could process information outside the awareness of the other. In essence, it meant that the operation produced a double consciousness. Yeah, this is crazy. Does that mean you have a double soul? Like, So then he yeah. basically kind of undid the thoughts from Descartes saying there's no way that the brain is divisible, but the soul is indivisible because the brain is actually can be read as the mind or consciousness. Yeah, this is really interesting because it just occurred to me that this could refute the Christian argument that the brain is the receiver. Mm -hmm. for the soul because if it was the receiver for the soul and you split it in two right wouldn't it stop working right instead of receiving two separate different souls right it conceivably would still receive a soul but it would be like garbled or something it'd be different than what it was before but you wouldn't get two separate ones right unless the brain itself was the was the one that was creating the illusion of the soul or like the experience right. of the soul yeah, the article ends with, the brain is where thinking takes place. Love and hatred reside. Sensations become perceptions. Personality is formed. Memories and beliefs are held. And where decisions are made. There's nothing left for the soul to do. Oh, wow. Except for the afterlife. Yeah, except for the afterlife. So the last thing we're going to talk about with the soul is the idea of free will, which is the more I think about this concept, I find it more and more interesting. <laughs> like. Mm -hmm. Does man really have free will if God was omniscient and he knew all that stuff? So this idea talks about if the soul is actually brain activity, then the brain is following like set biological laws and processes. Do we have free will? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I found a study, it's published in 2019, and it's called Decoding the Contents and Strength of Imagery Before Volitional Engagement. Great title. I know. So what they did <laughs> was they asked 14 subjects to choose between two images, and then they used an fMRI, which is a functional MRI, to monitor brain activity, and they used machine learning to analyze the neuroimages. The researchers were able to predict which pattern participants would choose up to 11 seconds before they consciously made the decision. Oh, that's crazy. They were also able to predict how vividly the participants would be able to envision envision it. So they asked the participants to choose one, but like not voice it out loud, mm -hmm. but and then press a button when you choose it. And then you imagine that image as hard as you can, as vividly mm -hmm. as you can in your mind. And then the functional MRI was like recording this whole time. Right. And they were able to, yeah, also predict how vividly they were envisioning it in their head. That's wild. I know. And the lead author, Joel Pearson, said that the study suggests that traces of thought exist unconsciously before they become conscious. So that is like kind of a big explosion into nothingness of free will. Yeah. In my mind, that just like blows it away. Yeah, it kind of blows away because like if you can read someone's thoughts before they actually think them. It's predetermined, right? Yeah, it's that means that the brain was already formulating the stuff, you know, before the person was even aware of it. Mm -hmm. And 11 seconds is, that's a long time in the world of neuroscience. And my follow-up question to this, and I didn't read the whole study in detail because it was very long and heavy and full of lots of jargon. Right. But what if the participant chose it in like three seconds? Right. How far in advance would they be able to see? Because like I could choose, you know, show me two images. I'll choose one in a second. How far mm -hmm. in advance before that were they able to see? I don't know like how they... But the, the way the setup was of how it was. Yeah, what the process was. Yeah. I think yeah. there's still questions I want to ask about this. 
probably have to read the whole thing and then you'd yeah. read it and be like <laughs> take me all weekend <laughs> yeah, i know and you'd probably have a massive headache but yeah. that is pretty interesting That kind of like wraps up what we're talking about the soul. Let's jump into talking about afterlife. I had kind of a lot of fun with this section too. I don't know. I think you probably did too, but I was very excited to, of course, find a study or a survey from our favorite data provider, Pew Research Center. They did a study. This was in 2021, I believe. A large portion of humanity believes in some kind of afterlife with belief in heaven being higher than belief in hell. And while the majority believe in heaven or hell, there is a percentage of people who believe in some other kind of afterlife. So we're going to rattle off some numbers. Yeah. I thought some of these numbers were astounding. I was very surprised by a lot of them. These percentages are mind-blowing to me. The first one, especially, 73% of all U.S. adults believe in a, a heaven and 62% believe in a hell. That is a huge percentage of people. I was surprised. That seems high. Yeah, I thought it was really high. And then even 37% of religiously unaffiliated people believe in heaven, which I thought was really interesting too. Also seems high. Well, yeah. I mean, I don't think that's synonymous with atheist. Well, this is like re religiously unaffiliated, which we talked about before. It's like an interesting kind of category. Like that would probably be the people that would categorize themselves as spiritual, but not religious. Mm -hmm. This group describes themselves as their religion as nothing in particular. So agnostics, 26% 26, 26 of agnostics believe in heaven and even 3% of atheists. Yeah. <laughs> I thought that was pretty interesting too. I don't know how that works, but yeah, that's fine. And then 7% believe in some kind of afterlife other than heaven or hell. So that's interesting. Like what other afterlife? Is it like the kind where your atoms disperse into the universe or another religion's afterlife? Like Hindu, yeah. is there a Hindu afterlife? I, yeah, yeah they, I'm not really sure. Yeah, I forget what the Hindu heaven or hell is called, but it's not heaven or hell. They call it something else. But And then, yeah, seven, only 17% of US American adults believe in no afterlife at all. So this is where you and I would fall, right? Right. Yeah. You don't believe in an afterlife. No. Okay. I don't. Just making sure. Yeah. So we're in the my we're in the the major <laughs> minority here. So <laughs> yeah. So there was a study by two academics at the University of Oxford, and they found that humans have kind of this natural tendency to believe in gods and an afterlife. That people across many different cultures instinctively believe that some part of their mind, soul, or spirit lives on after death. The study demonstrates that people are natural dualists, finding it easy to conceive of the separation of the mind and body. Well, it is easy to conceive. Yeah. It feels separate to me. Yeah. <laughs> but I wonder how much of this is instinctual or how much of it is taught. Right. They did 40 different studies in 20 countries, a diverse range of cultures, and they basically concluded that humans are predisposed to believe in gods in an afterlife. But yeah, it begs the question of like, is it predisposed or, you know, if your parents taught you about an afterlife, of course, you're going to believe in an afterlife on, mm -hmm. some, on some level. And you see that in our culture, like even people that are not religious, according to those <laughs> that study, believe in some kind of afterlife. Yeah. So if there is an afterlife, what kind of challenges are there for like a physical body existing after death? Well, all the questions that we asked about the soul, that applies to the body too. So the physical body can have physical defects that we're born with. And so the question is, does our body in heaven, the one that gets resurrected, does it still have that physical defect? Or are we like the best version of ourselves? Mm -hmm. Also, we change over our lifetime, right? So are we like in heaven at our peak physical fitness? Or are we like the hunched over arthritic right. on our walkers, 95 years old? <laughs> right. Yeah, you always kind of heard this being explained. It was like when you get to heaven, you're going to get a new body. 
But then it goes back to that question of like, well, if you get a whole new body and then is it even you? And what's the point? I mean, what is the use <laughs> of a body in heaven anyway? Right. Like if it's not a physical place, like it's a spiritual place, then what do you need an actual body for? And in that book, Seeing Through Christianity, he says, well, you have to have a bodily resurrection because of Jesus. That's why. Yeah. And that's the significance of having a body because, well, Jesus bodily raised allegedly. And so we have to bodily raise. To so. stay relevant, Christianity had to insist on the, the bodily resurrection because right. that's what happened with Jesus. Yeah. So the question is, of course, the question that we're always asking, well, is there evidence to confirm the reality of the afterlife? Is there? <laughs> what do you think? No. It's not a trick question. So <laughs> there's a Cambridge article that basically says, to date, no scientific study has, been, has found reliable evidence of an afterlife. So the research methodology in this, the whole report is available too. We can link to it if you want to try to get through it. But this person attempted to try to show like the probability of an athlete, uh, afterlife with like thought experiments and theoretical evidence. And it was pretty interesting because they had like control groups and all this kind of stuff. It was pretty interesting and came to the conclusion that there's not really evidence for it. Okay. So people say that near-death experiences are evidence. What are your thoughts on this? Okay, well, I am not a near-death experience expert, but what I hear and what I gather from all the people who I have heard talk about it is that it is best explained by lack of oxygen and that it's a response to that and that people see their life, they re replay their life or they see the God that they are conditioned to believe in so like anecdotally, NDEs can sound convincing, yeah. but when you actually look at studies that examine them and that cl the claims of the out-of-body experiences and like, oh, I can float up and, and see what's going on in the surgery room and then they put like words and numbers or something on the top of the cabinets just and then tell me what the cabinet, what it said up there in the cabinets right. and they can never report what it said. That to me is evidence that this is not actually happening. It's just a mental event. Right. It's probably similar to like your anesthesia experience where you're, yeah. you're, there's like there's some kind of latent cognitive functioning that's happening in the time period between your heart stopping and then your brain stopping. There's a lot of brain things that are still being studied, cognitive things that are happening to try yeah. to explain these from a scientific thing. It, it's a hard thing to really argue because a lot of the it's hard to argue with somebody who says this happened to me. Yeah. To us, I would say that we wouldn't say that near death experiences no. are evidence of an afterlife. So I was reading this article, the one that you that you linked to, mm. that I was like, I don't want to talk about this. Oh yeah, the weird one. <laughs> yeah. So he was talking about there's like this database or a website called like Enderf Near yeah. Death Experience Research Foundation or something. Yeah, yeah. He goes through all these lines of evidence as to why he thinks that they're like quote unquote real and not medically explained. Mm -hmm. Then you get to the end and you realize in his little bio, he's the founder of this Enderf. <laughs> and so like, of course he's kind of biased. Like this is what I'm talking about. Like, yeah. hold on, I'm reading this and I'm like, oh really? Like oh, that's interesting. are real? Yeah. Like, okay. But then I get to the end, I'm like, oh, major, major bias here. Right. So there's some logical problems with the concept of an afterlife. Specifically, mm -hmm. let's talk about heaven and hell, because there's some real problems with that idea. We touched on a couple of these things. Yeah, with like the personality traits of the yeah. soul and which traits get into heaven and which don't. Yeah, I like that thing from seeing through Christianity. They're not suited for eternal bliss. Yeah, right. <laughs> like your so crabby funny. neighbor in, yeah, in the exactly. eternal bliss. All right, so the, the problem with heaven is that what one person might see as heaven or might view as heaven, for another person, it's incompatible. Right. So the example that he gave in this book, Seeing Through Christianity, which we're talking about a lot because it's a, a lot, really yeah. amazing book. This is like 
like the Bart Ehrman of this episode, you know, from yeah, our yeah, yeah. Jesus episode. <laughs> okay, so he says, each person has a different view of heaven, and these views are not at all compatible. Perhaps someone wants to be reunited with a beloved grandmother, but the grandmother wants to be 25 and play golf. <laughs> the only way to make this work would be for the grandmother to play golf and all those wishing to spend time with her doing other things to be issued replica grandmothers. <laughs> Yeah, that's mind blowing. That's so funny because, like, if you're a grandmother, the last thing you want to do for all of eternity is just be like an 85 year old hunched over old lady, like dealing with your grandkids. Like, you yes. probably want to go to heaven and run, skip, and jump, and like live like when you were 30. Like, yeah. But meanwhile, how about your adult children? Are we like you're running into your grandma in heaven, but she's 25? You're like grandma. Yeah. They're like, do you have any hard candies? And she's like, no, I'm going to get drunk. Like, <laughs> don't have any Worthers. You know? Yeah. Exactly. You know, and all this kind of stems from this anthropomorphic interpretation of what heaven is. Like, exactly. We're interpreting heaven as like what we want it to be, but really, like what the Bible says that heaven is is like, well, you're just going to be there praising God for all of eternity. I think yeah. someplace in Revelation or somewhere it says all you're going to do is sing holy, holy, holy for all of eternity. Right. Which personally, that sounds like freaking hell. I never imagined heaven like this, like with the plane, the plane golf type thing, mm -hmm. or like in the good place where you can just ask for whatever you want and you get it. Right, right. That was never the idea of heaven that was presented to me. Right. At all. That's like kind of a shallow view of heaven to me because golf is just a sport. It's not fulfilling. Right. I mean, I guess some people find it fun, right. but it's like on a deep metaphysical, like soul, exist right. soul plane of existence. It's just golf. Well, some people probably feel that it's metaphysically satisfying and that's why they do it. I don't know. And I guess my view of heaven as a growing up in the Baptist world, there was definitely the mention of like the eternal praise of God, but it was also the idea of like having this perfect body and walking down the streets of gold and like everything being this like wondrous experience. And so I do remember asking at some point like well it sounds like all we're going to do is like praise god the whole time it's not going to get boring and they would just experience like no because that's what we're meant to do so like you're not going to know any better and i'm like now that i'm thinking about that i'm like well that's not really me then like it's just like now yeah. i turn into like a praise robot and all i'm going to do is can yeah. i now sing an eight-part harmony by myself in heaven because that would be pretty cool but like whoa that's gonna get old you know after a while i would imagine you know? yeah just like in the good place everything got old after a while right <laughs> okay spoilers if you haven't watched the good place and you plan to skip over this next 10 15 seconds right <laughs> like they got to the point where they got so bored of everything and there was nothing <laughs> left to do they just wanted it to end yeah i remembered what i was going to say about the body in cool. heaven so so when you have a body in heaven, like you said, it's supposed to be the perfect body. And I don't know, I'm guessing you didn't mean like perfect bikini body, right? Uh, or like maybe. perfect beach body. I mean, that might be heaven for some people. But then does that mean that, that people are still physically attracted to other people in heaven? Right. Are people having sex in heaven? Are people eating in heaven? Are we sweating? Right. <laughs> what are the physical bodily experiences in heaven? Right, yeah. I think somewhere in the Bible it says that there's no marriage or giving of marriage in heaven, so that's out. But what about sex? Or eating? Like eating is a big source of pleasure for yeah. people in general. Like there's that's a what I want to do. I want to go up and eat. I just want to eat. And eat and then still maintain your perfect heavenly body. I mean Exactly. That's the dream right there. <laughs> that's that's heaven. You know. <laughs> clearly that one doesn't yeah, we exist. Solved the heaven problem. Yeah, clearly that one doesn't <laughs> exist. Just ask my last physical, you know, but like so it's like <laughs> That's crazy. But 
And I think one of the last logical problems for the idea of heaven and hell is that in Christian theology, most people are destined for hell. Right. 95% of the population is destined for hell. I was. So it's this very small group of people that are going to get to go to heaven. And to me, that just sucks. Like... (laughs) So 95%, is that like an official number of when, you, if you poll Christians and what they think about how, what percent of I people I don't know where going? I saw that number. I, it might've been in the same book, you know, where he's talking about, you know, the reason you go to heaven is because you pass the God question. The idea, even in the Bible is that, you know, broad is the way that leads to destruction and narrow is yeah. the way that leads to eternal life. Because I'm just thinking that if 70-ish percent yeah. right now are the population in America are Christian, then most of them are not going to heaven. That'd be an interesting wake-up call because also in the Bible, it says not everybody that said, Lord, Lord, is going to enter into heaven. So there might be a lot of people thinking they're going to heaven. Yeah. They're going to get a steaming hellish wake-up call. And I always knew that I was going to be going to hell if it was real. Yeah. I always knew because I always knew I didn't fully believe it. So yeah. if anybody was going to hell, it was going to be me. All right, let's go move on to our next point, which is how is the belief in the soul and the afterlife related to the idea of a spiritual realm, even beyond the idea of Christianity? Like, there's a lot of people now that you know they believe in karma or energy or the universe. And on my way out of Christianity, I use the term like I'm spiritual but not religious because I wanted to try to separate that thing because like religion was shitty and you know judgmental, but spiritual sounds enlightened you know like Mm -hmm. so how is the idea of if you believe in the soul and afterlife related to the idea of the spiritual realm because to me it kind of naturally follows that if you believe in the soul and an afterlife then you would also believe in some kind of supernatural or spiritual realm yeah and and that you can impact that realm and interact with it on some level now that you can interact with it here on earth yeah sure because you're you know you hear people talk about oh i can you're putting good energy into the earth i'm sending you positive vibes like that's all spiritual i I thought that was just figures of speech people said they don't actually mean it right no haven't you ever watched the secret no oh you need to watch that that's i don't know what that is that's some good gobbledygook it's like (laughs) self-help thing but it's about like hey what you put out into the universe is going to be answered by the universe and come back to you it's the same thing as prayer except for it's the universe. Okay. There's another study that's talking about the effectiveness of prayer. It says fully two thirds, actually it was in that same Pew Research study, fully two thirds of US adults believe that it's possible for people to receive a definite answer to a prayer request. And the same share, I think it's 67%, think it's possible to receive a direct revelation from God. Oh, that's so scary to me. Americans are more likely to say they have experienced the former, meaning a direct answer to prayer, than the latter, which is 40, uh, 46% for the answer to prayer, 29% a direct revelation from God. Okay, so the first set of numbers is that I believe it's possible to receive a direct answer or revelation, but then the second two numbers, 46 and 29%, is that they actually have experienced those things. Right, which all three of those numbers are staggering. Like, <laughs> yeah, 67% of people believing that, that you can get an answer to prayer. Well, the revelation one is the scarier one to me because yeah. that's like God's talking to you directly and but we know that that doesn't happen so it's right. that your own thoughts you're now attributing them to the divine right and that means a lot of people are, are literally Acting on them are delusional and, and psychotic yeah 
So the other thing also is about interaction with the dead. Seven in 10 Americans say it's possible to feel the presence of someone who has died, while roughly half say that living people can be helped by those who have passed. Mormons believe this, and they believe it the other way too, or communicate with them in some way. When asked about their personal experiences with the deceased, 44% of U.S. adults say they have felt the presence of someone who died, while smaller shares say that they've received help or communicated with someone who's died. So that's also really interesting. Like seven out of 10 people. I mean, I can see saying, oh, I feel the presence of someone who died, but that doesn't mean I really believe that they're there. It's comforting for people to believe this. Right. Yeah. So like I can see something that reminds me of my grandmother and I can quote unquote feel her presence, but I don't think that she's actually there. Oh, I have a friend who was telling me this, that I think it was whenever she sees a butterfly, it somehow reminds her of her dad because of something I don't know, they share a love of butterflies or something. Right, right. <laughs> and, and so it comforts her, even though she said to me, I know that it's not him and I know that it's not like orchestrated or supernatural, but it makes me feel better. And I was like, right. that's great. Like you should keep that because it's making you feel better. It's making you feel connected to him. Right. And there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. Like no. on the Howard Stern show, there's a guy on their show that is like heavily into like a lot of weird spiritual spiritualism stuff. And he's always talking about how dimes are some kind of symbol of like someone from oh, the yeah. afterlife communicating with you because like dimes on the person's eyes to pay the boatman to cross the river sticks in mythology. Oh, that's why. Okay. Uh, so that's where that comes from. But um, yeah, he was saying, oh, anytime you come across a dime, it means like some kind of, you know, person from your, you know, that's passed on is trying to communicate with you. And he's like, no. I was thinking about my grandfather who passed away and right after that i saw a dime on the ground and i just i knew he was there like no somebody just dropped their currency you live in new york city people drop dimes <laughs> like you know how many dimes are there in new york city i know billions pro probably a lot you know enough for all the dead people i guess yeah and another spiritual thing that people believe in we already talked about is the near-death experience thing and there's a lot of people believe in this too um and even in the world of people who don't claim to be religious you know this might be some of you guys who are listening you consider yourself spiritual but not religious like what does that mean like do you consider yourself spiritual at all no not at all yeah i don't either and like to me the question i always have about that is like how does that fit into the framework of being like an evidence-based person because there's a lot of people like people that i know from the facebook groups and stuff that we're yep. in and they're into all kinds of different like spiritual type things and i always find it a little bit befuddling because i'm like i know me too i, I just don't get it and which is which i guess is fine which brings to the, yeah, the last fine. question of like is there any harm in it yeah so i think no most of the time no because it's it's not an evangelical thing like i don't think right. that there's spiritual people going out trying to convert people to spirituality and it's not a judgmental thing where to be spiritual you have to be against homosexuality or against right. people who have sex before marriage or or that women are second-class citizens to men none of that fits in with spirituality as far right. as i know yeah the only thing i can see is that like if they get sucked into something where crystals actually do something and that's definitely not an evidence-based thing right and then they start to tell other people about the crystals and then they start an mlm about the crystals like <laughs> it, it's a it's a slippery slope sometimes yeah well i think it also can be potentially harmful not in the same way that like religion is if you're giving power to something external to yourself 
that's where I run into the issue with being spiritual. Like I don't want to give power to anything that I'm not in control of. And it's mm-hmm. not because I have some high level desire to control. It's because I lived my whole life with someone else in control, <laughs> allegedly, you know, and now I want to make the decisions that for my life based on actual science or evidence or proof. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I don't know that much about spirituality and I, it's just such a huge range of beliefs. Yeah. It's a huge range. There's probably, we'll probably get some, maybe some discussion on our Facebook group about spirituality and, and maybe, yeah. maybe some pushback saying, Hey, well, you can be spiritual and it's, it doesn't affect my ability to live an evidence-based life, which I think is completely possible. Yeah. There's no way to box in the category of spirituality per se. We're saying that so there are definitely are certain aspects of certain types of spirituality that could be potentially harmful. Right, right. And I've even heard people describe spirituality as like that transcendent feeling or that awe when you look at nature or when you think of the universe. And I get that. I feel that. I just don't feel the need to describe it as spirituality. Right. I think it's all natural stuff that's happening in my brain. And what I know what I'm looking at is natural. Like when I'm looking at mountains or rivers or stars, that's all natural. Yeah. There's something about like the appreciation for the cognitive process that allows you to experience things, you know. And I haven't felt like I've missed out on anything by not attributing those experiences to like a higher realm. Right. And I think it's because I value truth so much. Like I would rather believe in true things than not true things. And I wouldn't be able to verify a spiritual realm. And so it makes me feel better and more fulfilled to not believe in the spiritual realm. If you believe in heaven, hell, afterlife, what are some of the positives that someone might experience from that belief? Well, I think one positive is that if somebody thinks that their eternal destiny is on the line, then they'll be more worried for their soul and try to be a better person. And that's good for humanity, even if it's for the wrong reasons. Oh, that's interesting. I'm not sure I agree with that because I feel like... Push back, please. Well, because I don't think, and I think this was in Seeing Through Christianity too, I don't think a lot of Christians are motivated to be better people because of the afterlife because they've already got the afterlife secured. So they don't give a shit about how they treat people. This is only certain types of people. Well, Lutherans don't see it that way. Yeah, I could see I could see some people, yes, saying, okay, I want to live as good a life I can because of, of the afterlife, but you get to the afterlife of heaven because of your passing the Jesus belief question. Your, your faith, yeah. Right, so it's not necessarily about how you're living. That's I interesting. Think he, I think he makes that point saying it would be okay if people believed in an afterlife and it caused them to live better, but by and large, it doesn't. Yeah, Lutherans believe in that faith and not works gets you into heaven, but if you do have faith, then the works fall follow. Right. And if you don't have the works, then you don't have the faith. So, I mean, essentially works get you into heaven. Right. Yeah, they exactly. just don't want to say it like that. <laughs> yeah. Baptists would say the same thing. It's like your faith is what saves you, but your works are the outflowing of that faith. So what positives do you see then? Well, I other think, than that? I th- yeah, I think the biggest one is probably just this idea of like hope for the future, that this is not the end. You can look at the world around you and say, even amidst all this garbage that's going on, wars and famine and pestilence, you know, this isn't the end because we have heaven to look forward to. I mean, you hear countless Christians saying like, it doesn't matter what's going on in in Gaza because we're all going to die and go to heaven eventually anyway. And you know, eternity is what matters, not what matters on this earth. Mm-hmm. So I think that does give some measure of 
of hope, especially for someone who maybe has like a life that's not the best life. Like they tolerate suffering because they're like, oh, well, this is, this suffering is temporal. I'll be with Jesus eventually and I'll leave so eternally. So no, no suffering is another positive then. So yeah. my question then is in the anthropomorphic version of heaven, if there's no suffering, does that mean that when you're playing golf, you can't ever have a bad game? <laughs> you can't miss a shot. Yeah. Like <laughs> and if that's the case, isn't it boring to like play golf and always get a hole in one every yeah. like, oh, I'm gonna get a hole in one in this one too. Go to the next <laughs> one and get another hole in one. Yeah, you're gonna get bored because every shot is a five hundred yard hole in one. <laughs> yeah. The system's rigged though. Yeah, exactly. Um, I think another positive is the idea of like, you know, reuniting with loved ones. People yeah. are like, that's a big thing. People are every funeral, you're like, Well, we'll see this person again. Like that's comforting. And that helps the grief process on some level. You know, it makes people feel better in the moment because it lessens that fear about death. You know, you're like, nobody wants to die. But if you have this idea of heaven, then it's something to look forward to. If on earth you like left off a relationship, not in a good place, and then they die and you have unfinished business with them mm -hmm. and you can think in your head, oh, well, I'll be able to resolve this in the afterlife. Yeah. All right. Let's talk about some of the negatives potentially of believing in heaven, hell, or afterlife. Oh, well, the big one for me is that people who believe in the afterlife tend to, not always, tend to care less about the earth. Mm -hmm. And as somebody, and I know you do too, I care a lot about the earth. I try to be as responsible as I can. I, that really sucks to me. Right. I just wish everybody would be on the same page about the environment. Yeah. And this was a big thing for me in my like kind of progressive Christian transition. Like I was realizing, oh, well, the reason a lot of these people don't believe in climate change and all that kind of stuff is because they don't care because the whole mm -hmm. earth is going to be destroyed. And there's going to be a new heaven, a new earth. Okay. Well, that makes perfect sense. And then, you know, when you realize, well, none of that matters, well, then all of a sudden climate change and the environment actually matters, you know? Yeah. Another one that I think can think of is that there's like less care to work to change situations where people are suffering. There's charities and stuff that like do a lot of good work, but like a lot of these Christian charities and stuff, they're the physical needs that they're meeting sometimes are secondary to the spiritual needs. Mm -hmm. And then some people might ha not have a desire to build relationships with people that they don't agree with or don't believe the same, which is especially true if you believe in hell because you think, well, I can't associate with them. They're going to drag me down or mm. <laughs> they'll rub off on me. They'll rub off on my kids. Yeah. It really promotes that us versus them mentality that we see so much with religion. Yeah. Yeah. Another one I think is like that you're living a life based on a fantasy versus reality. Your whole life is based on a book that you may or may not have ever really read. You don't understand how it's put together. To me, that's a big negative. You're living a life based on a fantasy. <laughs> you know. <sighs> Have you read Jane Eyre? A long, long, long okay. time ago, probably like high school. It's my favorite book ever. Spoilers. Spoilers. So at the beginning of the book, when Jane is at that horrible school, and then she makes friends with this girl named Helen Burns, and then Helen gets really, really sick. And she's also very mistreated at this school. Like mm -hmm. they're horrible to her. And they, they say she's she's a terrible person and she's disobedient. And she just she just takes it. She takes all of it. Right, right. There's so much suffering at this school. And then she's about to die. She's on her deathbed. And Jane is like, how are you so calm? And she's like, oh, because I'm going to meet my maker and I'm going to have mm -hmm. eternal bliss in heaven. And the whole reason she never fought back to these people is because she knew that her, her suffering was temporary and that she right. would it would all be made up for in the next life. And mm -hmm. I've read this book so many times and that struck me so hard this last time I read it as an atheist because mm -hmm. I was like, no, she didn't get any of that. It was so sad to me. Right. I even started crying. I was like, this poor girl, she got yeah. nothing. She was just mistreated her whole life and got nothing out of it. 
Yeah. And you see that, like you see people live lives that are just like shitty for lack of a better term and accept them. They're just like, well, that's just a lot that God gave me. Like, why would you accept that? Yeah. It's really sad. Yeah. It's just, that's a huge negative. And we already mentioned this, but you know, there's a large percentage of people that are not going to go to heaven anyway. Yeah. Most people are going to hell. So that's a huge negative. (laughs) Big negative. You're going to hell most likely. Yeah. Oh, this one I hate that going to heaven is solely based on your belief in God, like the cosmic test rather than how you live. Right. Because your belief in God is all based on how gullible you are and how (laughs) likely you are to believe in something without evidence. Right. How should that be the determinator? (laughs) Determinator. (laughs) Tune in next week for the determinator. I can't believe I just said determinator. (laughs) Here on the Flawed Theology Podcast, we like to occasionally make up words. It's fine. I'm trying to imagine a, what that would be like as a movie. Yeah, the determinator. It's like yeah, hmm, it's got two meanings too, because it could be like you're unterminating people or you're determinating yeah, people. Right. Yeah. The anti-terminator. Yeah, like determinating. Yeah, <laughs> it's funny. Okay, what were we even talking about? I don't remember. Oh, we're just talking about how like getting into heaven is based solely on passing the belief in God test. Yes, thank you. But your belief in God is also solely based on where you were born and who your parents were and like what culture you lived in. So And how easy you are to be brainwashed. Some people are more susceptible to brainwashing right. than others. Yeah. So the last negative is just a quote from again, seeing through Christianity. So apparently people need to go out and buy this book because there's so oh, much good, really there's, good. There's so much good stuff in it. He says, at best, belief in God does not equip people any better for the difficult questions of purpose than the lack of such belief. More likely, belief in God is a distraction because it fixates people on hypothetical afterlives rather than on the most making the most of the lives that they have. Values such as goodness and beauty come not from God, but from human experience in life, and purpose derives from putting those values back into it. Quickly, let's talk about if you don't believe in heaven, hell, or afterlives, what are the positives and negatives? Let's talk about the negatives first because there's only one I feel like. (laughs) To me, the fear of the unknown is like a valid human emotion. So without the comfort of an afterlife, maybe people could have heightened fears about death, especially for people who believed in an afterlife before and now don't. That could still be pretty disconcerting. Mm -hmm. I think that also there's the fear of hell, which is still ingrained in a lot of people. Even if they don't believe in the afterlife, they still have the fear of hell. And then they fear they're going to go there because they don't believe in hell, which is weird. Yeah. All right. So how about the positives? Okay. Well, the one that comes to my mind first is that if there's no hell, you don't need to go around saving people. There's no us versus them. Everybody's on the same playing field. Mm -hmm. Everybody's playing for the same team. Yeah. Caitlin had that that motto that she told us during her episode, human hands solve human problems. Yeah. That has such a nice ring to it. And I think yeah. that more people would believe that if they realized there was no afterlife. Yeah. And it would just motivate you to solve the problems that exist in humanity. There's, there's so many things that we can make an impact to change. The motivation to make a difference is much higher if this life is all we have. Yeah. And then you may have an increased desire to build relationships with people, not for the purpose of converting them or saving their soul, Mm -hmm. but just to help them live their best lives possible or to let that person be as they are and support them in their journey to be the best version of themselves. Yeah. This is the thing that is really attractive to me about humanism 
it's not just about like making your own best life, you know, because that's a little bit selfish, you know, mm-hmm. but it's looking around at the people around. It's like, well, how can I make that person's life better? That to me is like the highest calling I feel like as a human. Yeah. I think we've run the gamut on this one. Yep. Again, this is another topic where the evangelism for critical thinking needs to be done. Because I think most people, like that survey kind of pointed out, they kind of just accept the idea of afterlife and heaven and hell. It's just like kind of one of those things like, oh, yeah, I'm going to go somewhere when I die or I'm going to live forever, you know, after I die in some form or fashion. And there's not really any pushback against that idea. Mm-hmm. So your view of the afterlife and the idea of a soul, that stuff matters and and it makes an impact on how you live. So hopefully people will be inspired to think more about it. We're going to post a ton of links. Oh yeah, we have a lot in of links. In the show notes, there's a lot of links. So if you want to dig in this some more, definitely do so. And, and maybe we can start up a conversation on the Dangerous Questions group to talk yes. about this if you guys got questions or comments or or snide remarks you know we're we're open to all of those yeah we're open to all the pushback and all (laughs) the snide remarks thanks for listening to this episode of the flawed theology podcast i'm phil and i'm Susie. tune in next time where we will continue to tackle the question if your theology were wrong wouldn't you want to know Be sure to join us on our Facebook group, Dangerous Questions, and follow us at FlawedTheologyPodcast.com. Subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Rate and review the podcast on Google, Spotify, Apple. Those uh, reviews are really cool and we like to hear from them. So until next time, keep asking the dangerous questions. See you next time. Mike, this kitten is freaking hilarious. The, the kitten jumped into the toilet the first night we had him. Mine did too. Like, I got up in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom, and we've been keeping the kitten in the bathroom. So I go over there to pee, and the cat comes over. He looks up at me right into the toilet. And I'm like, I'm like what are you doing, dude? There's water in there. You know, I scoop him out. He's never done it again since. He instantly yeah. learned, okay, learned. I don't need to jump in the toilet. From God, but from human experience in life. <laughs> And purpose derives from putting those values back into it. What the hell are you laughing at? The Terminator. She's she's still Sorry. thinking about the Determinator. You're gonna have to like completely mute yourself in the whole quote. Once I start laughing, I don't stop. Yeah, I know. It's a real problem. It is. Whoever decided to put me on a podcast. Yeah, great idea.